This is an ABC podcast. Peter Fitzsimons has written many books on Australian history, particularly on the experience of Australians at war. But not many stories have given him the opportunity to talk to the participants in one of those great and terrible, defining moments, an episode from half a century ago in Vietnam. On the 18th of August, 1966, a company of Australian soldiers was sent out on patrol. They were pushing out beyond the perimeter fence of their base at Nui Dat. Two nights earlier, the base had been hit with a barrage of artillery fire launched from somewhere in the dark plantation fields to the east. The soldiers from Delta Company found the spot where the Viet Cong had launched the attack, but they were nowhere to be found. Then, as the Australians advanced into a rubber plantation near the village of Long Tan, they ran into an overwhelmingly large enemy force advancing towards the base. The Australian soldiers were vastly outnumbered. And then the skies opened and monsoonal rains fell on the scene, drenching the participants. The men were pinned down under a ferocious enemy onslaught and had to hang on as Vietnamese forces kept coming and coming and coming. Peter's book is called The Battle of Long Tan. Welcome back, Peter. Not a very clever title, is it? I've only ever come up with one clever title for a book. (laughs) I don't really see what else you could have called it. This was more than 50 years ago, like I said. Uh, But, of course, there are survivors, uh, veterans who are survivors. Who did you get to talk to about this? This was one of the joys. Well, when I say the joys, one of the privileges of doing this book. The bag's under my eyes uh, because at 5am I was trawling through the diaries of the men that fought the, the Battle of Beersheba, the last charge at Beersheba on the 31st of October 1917. And I get confused, but hang on, how does that fit with this, with that? In the case of Long Tan, I was able to pick up the phone, Lieutenant... <laughs> Lieutenant right, and ask, right. And Dave, yeah. well, particularly, there's a guy called Dave Sabin, who was in charge, it was the commander of uh, the 12th Platoon of Delta Company, and I regard him as the world expert. There's a bloke called John O'Halloran, who was uh, second in command of Bravo Company, and he wrote a brilliant book called Platoon Commander, and which helped fill in the gaps of what I didn't know. And Bob Grandin, Flight Lieutenant Bob Grandin, oh, I was always on the phone to him. And then I love the story of Little Patty and Cole Joy, yes. who unbelievably were conducting a concert when the Battle of Long Tan broke out five kilometres to their east. And I was able to call, well, I had an afternoon with Little Patty and Cole Joy to bring a story to life. The veterans, surviving veterans, it tends to be the case with any battle that veterans tend to not want to say very much for a very long while after mm. the event. But when they hit their 70s or 80s, they become more willing to talk. Were they willing to talk or did you have to sort of try and draw it out, the story out of it? Yes. Well, Dave Sabin particularly. How will I put this? He felt me out first. He wanted to talk to me. Before he'd talked to me fully, he wanted to know what my intention was and wanted to know that you know he could trust me. All right, we need to set the scene a bit ahead of the Battle mm. of Long Tan. This is 19, early 1966. The Beatles are about to release Revolver. Mm. Uh, President Lyndon Johnson is in the White House, who is committed American more and more, committing more and more American forces to Vietnam at that point. 
paint a picture of what was going on in Australia at that time, Peter. Could I go back a little earlier? Just sure. to say that the, the Vietnamese had wanted China out of Vietnam for dot three, carry one, subtract two, about 800, 900 years. Then the French had come in in the mid-1800s that they wanted the French out. And then this man by the name of Ho Chi Minh, he had 100, 100 aliases, but the one he became known as was Ho Chi Minh, the bringer of light. They had 30 years away, being in Paris, in London, and being a Bolshevik, comes back to Vietnam, organises to organise cells, if you like, across North Vietnam to repel the invader. The French come back in, his forces take on the French, humiliate them in the Battle of Dien Bien Phu, and then the Americans, Eisenhower in 54, talks about the domino theory. If we don't stop the communists in Vietnam, they'll, they'll wipe, out, wipe us all Other out. Other nations will fall over and, and like, fall into the Soviet sphere of influence. That's like right. dominoes. Yeah. And mm-hmm. then Kennedy, Kennedy comes to the White House. And when Kennedy goes to Paris in 1961, the famous trip where the French were knocked out by Jackie Kennedy, President Charles de Gaulle takes him aside at the Palace of Versailles and says, Monsieur le Président Kennedy... Il faut pas. You must not. Whatever happens, you must not go into Indochina. We French have been humiliated there. You will not win. Six weeks later, Douglas MacArthur goes to see him in the Oval Office and says, Mr President, I've been there. We can put a million men in there. They will have more. We will not win. MacArthur said anyone who commits land forces to the the Asian mainland mm. needs to have their head red. That's right. This is Douglas MacArthur who said that. Kennedy was unusual insofar as he'd been to Vietnam yes. as a congressman and was had a much better sense. He hadn't really been duchess, so he had a much better sense of the lay of the land, didn't he? And, and, yeah. and some understanding perhaps of the line of Ho Chi Minh, who I think it was in mm. 1946, Ho Chi Minh said to the French, you can kill 10 of my men. For every one of yours that I kill, and I will win this war. And he was right. And so then you had the slide into into the war where Kennedy was assassinated in 63 and LBJ, Lyndon Bain Johnson, takes over. And Australia, alarmed by what's happening in Vietnam and the growth of communism and led by Menzies, followed by Holt, Australia introduces conscription. And for me, again, my brothers, my I'm youngest of seven children, uh, and my older brothers talk about that, you know, and we're going into putting all these marbles in a barrel, turning the marble, pulling out birth dates and young men suddenly heading off to to be trained. And so these half of the guys that I was writing about in Delta Company of 6RAR and the rest of 6RAR, they were conscripts. And you had this extraordinary situation or they, they all all over Australia, they go to various camps and it's like every bad movie you've ever seen. You know, their hair is shorn, they're, they're, they've given, been given ill-fitting boots and clothes that uh, uniforms that don't fit and they're up at dawn and all of that kind of stuff. But then they go, those that are posted to 6RAR, to Delta Company, which is the prime unit that was involved in the Battle of Long Tan, come under major... Harry Smith. All right, I want to come to him in a minute, but first of all, before we get to him, mm. what were the main differences between the way Australian forces and mm. US forces operated in South Vietnam? The early forces of 1RAR Australia, they go and they're, they're aligned to the 173rd Airborne Americans in the base of Bien Hall. And the Australians, who had been trained by men, officers that had had experience in Borneo and the Malaya uprising, they knew about jungle warfare. They were in the business of winning hearts and minds. 
and they so this were... is a forgotten thing in, in, in many places that mm. Australians had participated in what was called in the 1950s the Malayan emergency mm. and had been well trained and learnt the lessons of jungle warfare, which was a, and it was a successful counter mm. uh, attack against the uh, the uprising there. And it, it, it seems like they had knowledge of that in a way that the mm. United States didn't have or didn't want to use. And they knew how to move elusively through the jungle. Mm. And they found the Americans, basically the Americans, by by the by the accounts of those that were there, they wanted to napalm the joint and be home by Christmas. And they would go into the jungle, sometimes with music blaring, smoking cigars, and then sometimes when they would kill enemy combatants, they would lay an ace of spades on them. And the Australians looked at this and said, this is just not us. This is not the way that we, we want to fight our war. We need our own province. And so they helped choose the province of Fuktui. Not far out of Saigon at all. Yes. Is it? It's on the coast, isn't it? On the coast yeah. and Vung, Vung Tau yeah. is the principal town, which was the R&R town on the peninsula, if you like, which was where there was a major base. But for the Australians, they did reconnaissance and they found a hill called Nui Dat. Yeah, now explain what this the lay of the land was like around Nui Dat. There were rubber plantations was one thing. There was heavy jungle not far away. And the problem was the VC, the Viet Cong, were were moving through. I mean, the, the Australians' job was to be disruptors, basically, to say we are, we are the presence here. We will work with the South Vietnamese Army. And we will we will win this province, and we'll prevent we will prevent the Viet Cong and and those of the the cadres of the North Vietnamese Army who were also yeah. coming through. We will prevent them doing operations as usual. There's jungle canopy in yep. some parts, mm-hmm. but plantations elsewhere. Rubber plantations. And, and does that give a, a guerrilla army uh, good cover then? Yes. It allows them to operate quite stealthily then as a yep. result? Very much so. Yeah. And when they selected Nui Dat, there was one problem. We is we're, we're going to establish a perimeter. And within this perimeter, uh, within five kilometres of Nui Dat, well, we can't have... We can't have villagers in the village because we need to know who's with us and who is against us. So we're basically in an exclusion zone. And one of those villages was the village of Long Tan. So they were emptied of their inhabitants, were they? The Australians and with the Americans forcibly removed them. Said there's not not an argument, you've got to you've got to move out. So on the fourth of April nineteen sixty six, Long Tan was one of the villages that was emptied. And again the Creating Aust- resentments, yes. hostility, yes. hatred, all yes. these things. Yeah. And the Australians again were were on the on the gentler side of things because part of their part of their modus operandi was more winning hearts and minds than just you know napalm and the rest with the, with the respect to the Americans and so they the five RAR and six RAR go in and Delta Company which is the one that I've f- focused on which was subsequently involved uh, right in the heart of the whole Battle of Long Tan. They arrive early June. And again, just to give a feel, can I talk about Major Harry Smith? Yeah, Smith? I was just about to ask you about him. Tell me a bit about him. And he's he's the man who's trained them. Mm. How had he trained them in, in uh, jungle warfare and, and the lessons he'd learnt in Malaya earlier? There was no way around it that the way Harry Smith operated, he was this forcible character, this very strong personality, professional army man who knew what he was doing. And he set a standard and he said, if you don't meet my standard, I'll move you on. And, you know, if if the 
if the army conditioning for for new recruits says you've got to be able to run a mile in a certain amount of time or five miles a march, five miles force march Kip, in a certain yeah. amount of time, um, we, well, we'll take 30 seconds off it. That's what you, that's the new standard. And if you're going to have to carry, you know, 30 pounds of weights, well, I want you to carry 40 pounds of weights. And he really worked them hard and he wanted esprit de corps. And they they got their own song, which was when these boots are made for walking. Or the Nancy Sinatra song, that, right? That's right. Yeah. And when that when right. they were marching, and Dave Sabin himself came up with their with the Delta Company logo, and there was some resentment from the other platoons about them. But and then before they before they head to Vietnam, he gets the uh, six RAR. In fact, all of six RAR had to listen to 6RAR Sergeant Major George Chin, who had experience. And the theme of his remarks, all the blokes that were there say this was a seriously strong speech, but I, so I can't do justice to its eloquence. But right. the essence of it was, listen to me, this is serious. Do not regard the VC as peasants firing pop guns. These are serious soldiers. They know what they're doing. They will be coming for you. We will be in the fight of our lives, so prepare yourselves. And Harry Smith had got some footage of the way the Americans had operated from one RAR, and he said, listen, look at this, exposed skin. We won't, And I was like this, we won't be doing that. There'll be no skin exposed. Look at this, we can see their dog tags. We won't be doing that. That will be taped down. We can't, when you're moving through the jungle, you've got to be elusive. When you're out on patrol... You can't be seen. So they're trained almost like commandos well, then. Well, the veterans of Vietnam now go to Duntroon to give them lessons. This is what we learnt at the Battle of Coral. And they've got Long Tan veterans. This is what we learnt at the Battle of Long Tan. And in the case of those, those soldiers heading off to Vietnam, they had the soldiers who had previous experience, particularly in Borneo, in Malaya, in Korea, to a lesser extent, Second World War, which was mostly a different, different battle apart from, of course, in New Guinea and the rest. But the ones that they learnt from were the, Mal the Malaya uprising, as you mentioned, um, most, most particularly passing on the lessons. And it seems to me that there is a good culture within the Australian Army of learning the lessons of previous combatants. So we get to May 66. As you say, Delta Company has been flown over mm. and they've been warned. They've been given a proper uh, apprehension of the skill mm. and the ferocity of the Viet Cong and North Vietnamese Army enemy that they'll be facing in the field. So they fly out of Amberley, Air Force Base in Queensland. Mm. They get to Saigon and then they're shuttled to Nui Dat. And, and, and they get to Saigon. I just got to say, they get to Saigon and they see planes taking off and helicopters coming down and they see dead bodies being loaded onto the, the backs of planes and they see fresh soldiers coming out and it's the smell is of diesel and blood and... There's this feeling of we are in a we're in a we're in a different world here. We're in a new world, and then they shuttled it down to Vung Tau, which is the biggest base near Nui Dat. And then they do some training in the early days of June 1966. They do training around Vung Tau on the on the on the mudflats just to the north. So when they get to Nui Dat, the Australian mm. base at Nui Dat, mm. how strong were the defences at Nui Dat protecting the base? Very weak. You know, basically strands of wire and some some basic defences where they where they'd uh, worked out their fields of fire. And there frankly weren't enough of them. They were there weren't enough soldiers to do what needed to be done. So they were constantly 
constantly digging trenches, constantly putting up wire, and there wasn't quite enough barbed wire to do. So any time a jeep came up with new wire, you know, unload it and get it going, but then you've just finished digging, you've got to go out on patrol. So you'd be constantly sending patrols out, and occasionally they would come across VC patrols, patrols of the Viet Cong, where there would be firefights. They were basically establishing themselves in Phuc Thuy province. What do we know now about the plans of the Viet Cong and the North Vietnamese, the enemy, the Vietnamese communists, let's call them that, Mm. the plans they had for Nui Dat at the time? There was a sense that the the enemy, the VC, are strengthening, that maybe there's maybe some possibility they're they're going to attack. And there was discussion in the highest echelons about whether or not they will or will not attack. And so, an attack in force. We're not talking about like the wipe them out, right? To to, to completely overrun the Australian Mm. base at Nui Dat, to completely Mm. wipe it out. Yes. And so, Operation Hobart goes out, which is all of six RAR, and then they do have they do have contact with the enemy. But uh, so, I think the Australians lost three three men were killed in that particular operation, thirteen wounded, and of VC of the VC enemy, I think they got about a dozen. Um, and it was it was a preliminary skirmish, if you like, of this sense of the enemy is strengthening. They they may threaten us, but the most interesting one of the most interesting stories is this captain, this fellow by the name of Captain Bob Keep. Now, who was he? He was with the intelligence corps. It's really clever the way they would do it. So the they realised the enemy worked with radios and they were sending out Morse code to each other and they would have radio directional finding and they started to put on a map. Well, they could work out, like you and I, somebody could hear our voice and they go, well, that's Fitzsimons talking to Feidler. More likely Feidler <laughs> talking to Fitzsimons. Or listening to Fitzsimons. <laughs> yes, actually, my, my apologies. I do get over, I go a little over the top. But similarly, Morse code people, Morse code professionals can recognise that's the guy that's operating the 275. Oh, yes, they have a signature, don't they? Yeah. A kind of a personal signature yes. the way they do it. And so Captain Bob Keep came to the conclusion that while 275 Regiment VC had been stationary for most of July, he starts to track it on the map and he says, listen, that's, that's, there's a thousand men coming our way. There's an arrow coming our way towards us. So and he can track the position of these signals yes. and they're getting closer and closer and closer and there's a sense of, uh, mm. a sense of uh, an enemy massing uh, as, as it's getting closer towards mm. Nui Dat. And it looks like an arrow coming straight to Nui right. Dat. So he tells his superiors who take very little interest and don't believe it. And part of the problem... Part of the the problem may well have been, this is deeply embarrassing. We're the Australians. We're a top Nui Dat. We're meant to have quelled all enemy activity or a lot of enemy activity in this province, and you're telling us there's a major force coming our way. Now, Bob Keep, you portray him as this uh, a brilliant figure, but quite eccentric. Hmm. Uh, well, and, and eccentric by Australian Army standards, I suppose. But was that did that, was that did that make it easier to disregard his advice? Do you think by these conservative officers at the time? Quite possibly. And he goes to the brigadier. And this is the amazing thing, Brigadier Jackson, and and says, Brigadier, I'm convinced that we're, we're in trouble here, that they're coming our way. And I, I cannot get my head around why Jackson kept it secret and didn't, didn't tell Colonel Colonel Townsend, who's the, the, the commanding officer of 6RAR, didn't even spread it that far. So, you know, you've got somebody that's convinced we're in mortal peril here and he gets just deeply frustrated essentially has a has a, an emotional breakdown 
and is I think it was on the fifteenth of August is flown is flown out, and so suddenly we're getting close to the seventeenth of August opening of the Battle of Long Tan. Meantime, there's a young woman, young girl, called the Patty Patty Amphlett, known as Little Patty, and she was at Sydney Girls High. And this is a few months before she comes home from Sydney Girls High, and the phone rings, and she her mother picks it up. She lives in Botany, our mascot, and mother picks it up. Says yes, yes, little Patty, yes. Tour of Vietnam to entertain the trip. All right, when will that? Okay, all right, August. All right, well, look, I'll talk to my husband. <laughs> and this is this most amazing thing that this seventeen-year-old schoolgirl who was famous throughout Australia for for singing Stompy Wompy, he's my little Stompy Wompy surfer boy, finds herself with Cole Joy and the Joy Boys, who looked after her like a silkworm. You know, really sort of a, a, a paternal care of her. Meantime, they have flown into Vung Tau and are heading, on the 18th of August, they're heading towards Nui Dat. So while all this is going on, there's a concert going on in mm. Nui Dat. Intelligence has been received yes. to say that the Viet Cong are massing and on, on mm. their way, but it's not been passed on. So any attack that's going to happen is going to be, come as a terrible surprise for nearly everyone concerned. At- so let's get to the 17th, mm. the night of the 16th, 17th of mm. August, the artillery attack. Yes. So the Tell me in- what happened on that night, The Peter. intelligence shows that they've stopped at Nui Dat 2, which is a nearby hill on the other side of Long Tan Plantation. At about 2.30 in the morning of the 17th of August, 1966, most of them are asleep uh, and suddenly... <sighs> And I can't do the sound effects, but mortar. They're under serious mortar attack. And it's coming from, obviously, from outside the wire. Men are screaming and everybody to stations and it's it's on. This is this mortar attack. And tragically, a fellow by the name of, well, his name was Gunner Phil Norris. The word spreads, Phil has been hit. So when they get the torches on, they see that one piece of shrapnel has got into his... his uh, skull and they can see cerebral fluid out coming out and that he is airlifted out the next day and so that's on the 17th of August and then they start to send out the well we're going to have to send out patrols to work out where the attacks come from and so they send out in the first instance they get they alpha company goes out bravo company goes out of 6RAR looking for some some sign of where they are by the morning of the 18th of August, by which time Little Paddy and uh, Cold Joy and the Joy Boys are preparing at Bung Tau to be flown into to Nui Dat, out goes Delta Company. So Delta Company under Harry Smith, uh, they they head out and they're a bit annoyed because some of them, you know, well, we wanted to go to the concert. And as they're heading towards Long Tan Rubber Plantation, they can hear the strains of the band warming up behind them. And about at lunchtime, they meet up with Bravo Company right on the edge of Long Tan Rubber Plantation and they have lunch together. And uh, the scene is set, Richard. is Conversations with Richard Feidler. To find out more, just head to abc.net.au slash conversations. So Delta Company had gone out into the field and on the day of the 18th of August and suddenly on this patrol and without any kind of warning, they were hit with this extraordinary 
enemy barrage. How intense was the fire, Peter, and, and, and to the extent where they could even barely not even stand up? They, they had found the spots from where the artillery and mortar had been sent on them. And so Major Harry Smith gives the orders, OK, we're going to move into Long Tan Plantation and it will be 11 platoon under Lieutenant Gordon Sharp that will lead Delta Company HQ behind with 10 platoon and 12 platoon. And so they move off into the plantation and it's eerie because they're getting deeper into into this plantation, less light, and they come to a sunken road and they cross the road, 11 platoon crosses the road, and when by now, about 3.50, 15.50 in the army parlance, and suddenly Sergeant Bob Buick of the 11 platoon looks to his right just as they're crossing the road, and he looks to the right, and there are six soldiers, six enemy soldiers coming their way. He fires and two of them are hit. And so suddenly there's the, the cry goes out, contact, contact. And the other platoon commanders are jealous because lucky, lucky bugger, lucky 11 platoon, they've got contact. We all want contact. So they pursue, they can see the other six heading off and they start to pursue them and they get to a hut, a planter's hut, and they can see bandages and they can see blood. We know we've hit them. So they, they form up in, in their formation, fairly spread out, and they come to a clearing not far from Nui Dat 2, which is where the previous intelligence had said they were there. And they're just about to cross the clearing when suddenly they are hit and they are hit really hard. And in that first fusillade of, of fire, five to six of them, go down and it's it's in the left section of 11 platoon and where's the fire coming from is it coming directly frontally at them or from the trees or from where well from from the other side of a creek right at the base of Nui Dat 2 and can they see who's firing at them they they can see flitting figures right and they can see heavy fire and so it is Gordon Sharp Lieutenant Gordon Sharp from Tamworth who had been a conscript himself strangely had spoken out against conscription but had gone forward and had become a, an officer and so using the radio, he gets onto uh, Harry Smith and he says, 11 platoon, heavy fire coming from section 485610. And this was the thing that everybody had maps and they had grids. And so it was for the artillery. So they could know exactly where they were. We are 30 men of 11 platoon. We're in real trouble. And Harry Smith, who's back with Delta Company HQ, sends out 10 platoon, sends out 12 platoon to try to get them to help extricate them. So they're coming under this withering fire. Yes. And then the skies open. Yes. This rain like, <laughs> rain like you and I don't know rain, but rain comes down. And the, the question then arises back at Nui Dat, how are we going to get them out and what can we do? And various proposals are made. One is we'll, we'll send for the phantoms to drop napalm on where they are. But initially the big thing is the artillery. So this was the thing that there, there may have been 2,000 to 2,500 of the VC with the North Vietnamese cadres. 
and it was the artillery that kept them alive because Gordon Sharp is able to say, there they are, and then he's able to call it in 50 forward, 20 to the right, that's it, 10. And so precise artillery is coming down on the enemy, which is helping even the balance. But at about 4.50 p.m., 16.50 hours, Sergeant Bob Buick says to Lieutenant Gordon Sharp, you know, keep your head down, you're in trouble here. And Gordon Sharp says they, they couldn't hit me and then tragically he loses his life. Now, it was said afterwards by some journos, I think, that it was an ambush. The Australians had run into an amb- ambush. Mm. You don't think that's the case. You say many of the veterans don't think what's the case. What do they think happened there? Was this just a, a kind of an accidental run-in? I believe, and I'm keenly aware that I'm not a... <laughs> I'm not a you know a trained military historian, but I've talked to a lot of them, and there is a there is a dispute between between them as to whether this was an ambush or not. But for me, if part of the mortar attack was to bring the Australians out and out they came, you wouldn't have had six blokes ambling down the road as was the first contact between Delta Company and and the enemy. I mean, they those six men clearly didn't know they were there. For me, it didn't make sense that it was an ambush in that classic manner. So, so the Australians were shocked, surprised to run into this massed force. And you think, it, it, well, it's thought now that the Viet Cong were just as likely to be surprised of having run into these, these small platoons of Australians. And shocked. And then shocked. so they start to send out probing forces to try to get around the, the Australians. They talk about the mist rising. So the rain is coming down so heavily that it's splattering up and like there's a mist six inches above the ground. And so it's not the fog of war, it's the monsoon of war in this case. It's, so mm. it's very hard to tell what's, for anyone to tell what's really going on. Yes, but in this case, Dave Sabin talked about at one point, they're all down on their bellies and they're exposed to the enemy fire, but the rain's coming down so heavily that this mist rise arises like a miracle to help protect their vision. And they look forward and they can see they can see the, the helmets or the, the enemy coming towards them. So back at the base, why were they so reluctant to send in reinforcements initially? Because they didn't know what they were up against. They had to protect their base because if they were to send out heavy forces to, to extricate Delta Company, then maybe their whole base is exposed and they're and about then they're to be encircled. Over, right, overrun. Yeah. So by about five o'clock in the afternoon... The question then arises, Delta Company's running out of ammunition. And so the artillery's still firing, still firing. What can we do to get them out? And there's this extraordinary conversation that takes place at uh, 6RAR, well, the the base HQ. We need to send helicopters. No, we can't send helicopters. Why not? Because that's against the protocol. RAF 9 Squadron is under is separate from the Army. The Army can't tell the RAF what to do. It'd have to go via Canberra. And in one of my favourite scenes, this wonderful man, Flight Lieutenant Frank Riley, with his co-pilot Bob Grandin beside him, says, bugger this, I will go. I am the captain of my ship. I'm the captain of my helicopter. I'm on a mission now from Vung Tau. I happen to be at Nui Dat, but I'm not asking you for permission. I will go. Now, this is extraordinarily mm. dangerous, isn't it, Peter? Because mm. it's not, the, the night hasn't fallen yet. It's hard to see anything because of the monsoon. But these helicopters are going to be exposing themselves more or less in plain sight when they go in, aren't they? Yes. And one bullet through a rotor or yeah. one or one bullet through in, into the engine and they will go down. But and they went out anyway. Well, this is this extraordinary scene. And Bob Grandin helped me mightily 
on this. And so they decide, all right, well, Frank Riley is going to go. That that gets around the protocol. And so they get out of the tent and Bob Grandin says to him the obvious, what are you doing? We're all going to be killed. And Frank Riley says, well, you don't have to come, but I'm going. And so in the end, two choppers uh, get ready. They load them up with the ammo and they get ready to take off. And this is going to be for ammo reinforcement, is it? How did they drop them off then? What was the plan in this insanely dangerous mission? In chopper parlance, they call it a split-ass turn. And, <laughs> and, and it was something they had developed, which was the two choppers go up. So by six o'clock, finally, finally uh, they've, give, they've been given the permission at about the same time as the armoured personnel carriers are, are given permission. OK, you can go. They're in such trouble, you need to go. And so they take off and they're very heavily laden and they go up and they can see the storm ahead and they they waddle off towards it. And the idea of a split-ass turn is one chopper goes high, one chopper comes in very low and it's the chopper that's on high that spots where the flare, the smoke flare is coming up from and then calls them in. 50 forward, 20 to the right, you're there now drop it now, go. And so they drop and they go, turn, and then the one on high comes and the whole thing is bang, bang to oh. to get them. And down below, again, this fantastic man, Company Sergeant Major Jack Kirby, is he basically takes the ammo that falls and he starts to distribute it. By this time, they've extricated 11 platoon. The survivors of 11 platoon have got back to 12 platoon. 11, 12 platoon and 10 platoon have got back to company headquarters and they formed this perimeter basically to make their last stand. So by this time, there's less those that have been killed. There's about 90 to 94 men of whom 22 are wounded and being looked after in a ditch while the rest form a circle. They've put the flares out. The choppers have dropped the ammo. And, it's, and so they have their ammo. And meanwhile, of course, there's a lot of pressure to send out an armoured personnel mm. carrier, the APCs, the effectively, you know, like tanks that can hold troops. Mm. Tell me the story of how eventually they were deployed and, and the trouble they had getting out to these mm. stranded men. It's extraordinary that they were inside the wire of the Nui Dat base. And finally, under Lieutenant uh, Adrian Roberts, who's commanding the 10 APCs that are going out, they get the word, you can go. Great. Where's the exit? <laughs> because they they had they camouflaged the exits, and the people that understood where the camouflage was were having having their dinner. They couldn't find the exit. They couldn't find. They the couldn't exit. find the gate. So they had to go to get the bloke to open the gate, but but to tell them where it was, and then they get out, and it's a little bit like you know a cavalry charge because they their their men are in trouble. They've got to cross the creek. The, the because of this heavy rain, this creek's way up. Sui da bang. But they get across mm. and then they finally start to enter the long tan plantation when now, they get hit. Now, yeah, I just wonder what it must have been like for those men sitting inside the APC mm. getting all this gunfire but protected by the armour, hearing it ping off the, the shell of the APC. Yes, some of them didn't want to be inside. Some of them wanted to sit on top and some of them did. And then at one point they get ambushed themselves. So they're trying to get through. So at this point by... 6.30 at night, you've got the maker, you've got Delta Company making their last stand. They've got the ammo, but they're trying to hold on till till darkness falls. And at which point they're not going to be safe, but they're going to be safer. And it's the 
armoured personnel carriers trying to get through to them in time to protect them. And so what happened when the APCs got to the stranded uh, platoons? They were able to deploy around the perimeter. So out of out of those APC comes fresh soldiers. Yeah. And meantime, Bravo Company that had, but you'll recall, what was it, three hours earlier? Well, four or five hours earlier, they'd had lunch together and Bravo Company had gone back. They'd been halfway back when the battle had broken out. So Bravo Company comes back to them. The APCs disgorge soldiers and more ammunition and they're able to strengthen their perimeter. And then it went quiet. It went quiet. What had happened? Perhaps what had happened is the enemy, the VCs and the North Vietnamese had realised we're not going to crack this nut. It is dark. It is impossible to to fight. And so the Australians, the, the battle is more or less over. But it's not simply a matter of everybody pack up sticks and go because they don't know where the enemy is. Are they about to fall on us again? How do we how do we get our wounded out? Um, what's the best way of doing it? And in the end, it's decided that they will form up on the, there's a particular spot on the edge of Long Tan Plantation that the APCs will take the wounded on board. They'll form a convoy. They will get out. They will form a square, like circle the wagons effectively, and they will open their tops so that choppers coming across can be able to have this square to land in to start to get the wounded out. Yeah, I've seen one of those visual uh, animated displays of mm. uh, the Battle of Long Tan, which is like a, you can see, see it on, a, on the internet about what the Australian forces being gradually sort of almost encircled by the much larger uh, Vietnamese, uh, Viet Cong and North Vietnamese forces around them. And it looks almost overwhelming and you can see that they're in such terrible, deadly peril until the, the, the enemy decides it's it's getting too hard and too dangerous and we'll pull back. But it looks like they could, they were so close to total victory in, in a way. and they were But they were held off. They were held off. They were. And I hesitate to use the word victory, you know, because you, you see the well, numbers. Success. Let me say success. Success, yeah. Because it was just so dev- yeah. catastrophic on both sides. But the I, one of the most moving things for me was the when the choppers came in and this was, I think it was Bob Grandin and Frank Riley's chopper comes in and a digger comes forward because they're also taking out the dead. They'd, they'd recovered by the dead and the guy, the guy that hands it, that gives it to their chopper has in his arms the remains of his mate and he gently lays his mate down on the base of the chopper and says, look after him, he was my mate. So with that, the Battle of Longtown was concluded, mm. uh, more or less. What had been is achieved the right word? What was the outcome of, of this? How, how, how is this viewed these days, Peter? The interesting thing for me was the next day they go back into Longtown to retrieve the rest of the dead and they find two of the wounded. They, two of the wounded are still alive, which is, which is wonderful. And that afternoon, or even that morning, the Supreme Commander of the Americans in Vietnam, General Westmoreland, been a long time since he'd had good news to report. They what? I want what? And they've killed how many? And so wants to be a part of it and arrives with press, with senior officers, and the Australians are celebrated, if that's the right word, for this achievement in having taken on such a major force and coming out the other side. And Outnumbered more than 10 to 1 on this occasion, thereabouts, well, is that right? Well, there were 108, in the, 108 in the, including three Kiwis, and I should mention Captain Maurice Stanley, who was the great Kiwi forward observer, who was the one that was controlling the artillery. 
and I, I should say at one point things were so extreme from 11 platoon that Sergeant Bob Buick called in artillery fire on themselves and Maury Stanley refused to do it. He said, I've done many things. I'm not calling in artillery to kill my own men. But things were so grim that Bob Buick thought that they were... It was the only way to save the base. Well, that yeah. was the only way that they could sacrifice yeah. their lives and take more of the enemy with them. But what happened in Framel and Pozier, particularly Framel, dwarfs what happened at Gallipoli. But Gallipoli is the one that's constantly talked about. I think if you were to amass the Australian people's knowledge of what happened in our military past... 95% of it starts at dawn on the 25th of April 1915 and fades by sundown. Similarly, Vietnam War was a very mm. complex exercise with lots of battles, but it's the Battle of Long Tan that is the one that is legendary. And one of the things Dave Sabin said to me was, I mean, there was basically a shadow on their souls thereafter. Those that had been a part of 6RAR and Delta Company who had been a part of Long Tan that battle, they were sort of separate from the rest. On the third year anniversary of the Battle of Long Tan, Neil Rankin, Sergeant Neil Rankin of 10 Platoon, was on his second tour of duty. They had built a cross and they said to him, we want you to tell us exactly where this battle took place. So they went back into Long Tan plant, rubber plantation and they put up this cross. And that cross was then, after the Vietnam War was over, was taken by a local farmer, Catholic farmer, for his own father's grave. But they put another one up. I think they got that one in 2017. And that cross was brought back and put at the Australian War Memorial. How do the Vietnamese commemorate this, if at all, given that they were thwarted in their plans to overrun the, this in this military action? It's not one that there's there's claims and counterclaims as to, you know, how many were killed and all the rest, but it's not one that they're, they're not pointing to that one and say, how good was that for us? Do we have accounts by veterans, Vietnamese veterans of that uh, battle? I found it personally, and my researchers found it very difficult to get strong accounts of exactly what happened. The The story that moved me most out of the whole thing was I mentioned to you Phil Norris, and he was the one that uh, on the 17th of August, you know, the word had gone out, Phil's been killed. And many decades later, one of his mates was at the War Memorial. He's at the honour board and he's looking for his mate's name, Phil Norris. Where is he? What's, what's going on? And it's not there. And he's outraged and he writes angry letters to the War Memorial Veterans Affairs. He's my mate. He died on the morning of the 17th of August. Why is he not there? And the answer comes back, because he's not dead. <laughs> because he <laughs> was, a, well, he'd been evacuated and they, the word had gone out that he was dead. And it's a really extraordinary story that he'd come back, I think, to Roselle Hospital here in Sydney with brain damage, and his wife, Marianne, had visited early on but with her daughter, an infant daughter, and then that had stopped, and then his mum and brother had come, and then they died, and there he was for decades without his mates knowing he was alive. Then the mighty Granville Vietnam Veterans Association goes you know, to get him, and, and then they put him in touch with his daughter, and for the, he spends the last years of his life bathed in the love of his surviving family. I think on both sides of that battle, there was extraordinary courage uh, and fortitude, and particularly in the Australians' case, because they were so heavily outnumbered. Mm. In How do they remember it? How do they look back on it? Do they have mixed feelings about it, uh, given that it was, insofar as anything could be a massive achievement in war, that was an achievement? What do they think about it? The ones that I talk to are grieve, they still grieve 
for those that they lost. It's too damn sad. Yeah, there was a guy, Paul Large from Cooler, mm. that died, Gordon Sharp. I mean, John O'Halloran, as I say, who helped me from Tamworth. And after the war is over, he goes back to the family at Tamworth and says, look, I'm so sorry. And as soon as they see him, they explode with rage. He never wanted to go. You wanted to go. And really difficult situations there. And the, there was bitterness from the family. I mean, the family of Gordon Sharp had just come back from church, from mass in their street in Tamworth. And there waiting for them is a policeman, a priest, and the, the local army man who was in fact the father of Sir Peter Cosgrove. And they have the terrible duty of saying, we're very sorry to tell you, but your son has died. And the, the, the reply was just rage, rage that they had lost their son. The men who went to Vietnam were often the sons of men who'd fought in mm. World War II, the Good War, and it's said that many Vietnam veterans, when they came back, found themselves disparaged by men of that generation who mm. said, oh, you weren't in a real war. Yes. Is there that feeling amongst the veterans of long term? There, there was some resentment from the ones that I talked to, and, you know, here in New South Wales, the RSL, I think it's fair to say, has been struggling because the Second World War veterans that, that had said exactly as you describe, you weren't in a real war. And some of them did not feel welcome in the RSL, which... You know, Never set foot in an RSL ever again after that. Exactly. Yeah. What's your sense of the legacy of this battle? Whenever I talk about the ability of the Australian soldier, I'm aware of sounding vainglorious. You know, because I guess every does every nation beat their chest and say, our, you know, our blacks were, were terrific soldiers. But I must say, having done Kokoda, I mean... Kokoda and Tobruk particularly, and the First World War, our soldiers were really first class, absolutely first class. In the Second World War, they were the only one, the first ones to stop the Germans, a land army with the Australians at Tobruk, and this, the same army then goes to take on the Japanese and fight them at Milne Bay and, and the Kokoda Track, first ones to stop the Japanese army. And there in Vietnam, there were many scenes of you know, daring do. But that was an extraordinary episode where the Australians acquitted themselves extraordinarily well while still recognising that that was a very problematic war, whether we should have been there in the first place. Peter, thank you very much for bringing us this story. It's been lovely to speaking with you. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. abc.net.au slash conversations is our website. I'm Richard Feidler. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Last time you bought something to wear? This week? Yesterday? The average Australian buys 56 items of clothing and chucks out 15 kilos of clothes a year. So how did we get here? I'm Veronica Milsom, host of the ABC podcast Threads, where I undress the fast fashion industry and how it's designed to make us buy until we die. Threads. It's everything fast fashion doesn't want you to know. Hear it in the ABC Listen app.